The Light Switch podcast was created for anyone who loves motivational, inspiring, fascinating subjects. In some cases, jaw-dropping stories. After years working as the CEO of a speaker's agency in New York, I decided to share some of the marvelous people and stories that we place all over the world at conferences. And the name Light Switch came from the notion of simply turning on a light, illuminating either a part of your world or even the world of one of our guests. Because there is a common denominator among people who have reached a higher plateau in life. They all had a moment when something clicked and it took their life in a totally different direction. I call that a light switch moment. I'm James Robinson and I'll be your host. Thank you for tuning in to another episode. Probably one of the scariest nights uh, was deep in the South Pacific Ocean. And it was one of the only storms where I wasn't really alone. And that was because the Volvo Ocean Race boats were maybe 100 or 200 miles south of my position. And we were all in this very, very long, long gale. It had been going on for a few days. And so the waves had built up quite bad. I would say the average wave height was probably around 25 to 30 feet, and, and that's on average. So that's what you're normally seeing. And when you get in conditions like that, what that means is that every hundredth wave or so, something like that, you know, you're going to see a 40 or a 45-foot wave. And a 45-foot wave, is, is, it's unbelievable to see something like that, especially when it's breaking. I mean, that, that's a wave that's powerful enough to pretty much, if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, it can take out almost anything. Today's guest is Jerome Rand, who has sailed single-handedly without stopping all the way around the world. And this is one of the most incredible feats known to man, especially in a boat that is under 32 feet. Only four people in history have successfully done this. And I'm talking about people that are not sponsored, are not professionals, and are not in a big boat. So Jerome is with us today, and he's going to share that story. And I cannot tell you how difficult this is, because when you are sailing across oceans, sometimes with waves up to 45 feet, and you're alone for 275 days, it can really, really play terrible tricks on your mind and a lot of people have actually been driven mad by that amount of solitude but Jerome successfully did it he also went around Cape Horn and when he mentions his time going around Cape Horn just because he's such a modest chap he doesn't quite tell you that over 10,000 sailors have died in an ocean so treacherous this is the very southern point of South America where the Pacific Ocean clashes with the Atlantic and you are nearly at 60 degrees south which is about 400 miles from Antarctica it is the most treacherous ocean on planet earth and he successfully did that went through multiple gales blizzards nearly ran out of food starved to death and this is his story this is Jerome Rand live with us in the studio Thank you very much, James. It's uh, it's great to be here. I appreciate it. You're now a member of a very elite club, aren't you? How many people have actually successfully done this solo around the world? Uh, well, I think 
out of everybody, racers and, and record breakers and all that, there's probably around 200 people. I've heard all sorts of different numbers for that, but um, when it comes to, you know, unsponsored, non-racing, you know, just your average everyday sort of sailor, there's about 20 or 25 of us. And then when you get down into sort of how big the boats are, I, I believe that for boats 32 feet and under, there's only four of us. Gosh. Because this podcast is called The Light Switch, I always start by asking people, what was your kind of light switch moment that propelled you to do a solo sail around the world? Uh, I, you know, that's a bit of a tricky one, but um, really the the dream sort of turned into a goal when I was finishing a previous adventure, hiking the uh, Appalachian Trail. And I was on that trail for 133 days. When I finished it, it was an absolutely amazing feeling of just doing something so far out of the box and out of the norm and really for no other purpose than just going out and sort of having this adventure and as i was hiking back down that final mountain up in maine i can remember thinking you know this was this was so great what can i do that can make me feel like this again and i just sort of searched back through my mind and I found the biggest thing on my bucket list, and I said, let's go for it. But why a sail around the world? The Appalachian Trail is a gentle walk in the woods. Do you have a background in, in nautical sports? Yes, I do. I, I started pretty late in sailing, but uh, when I was 18, I first learned how to sail, and I never stopped after that. And when I got into ocean sailing, doing various yacht deliveries, uh, a few trips across the Atlantic and such, I would always find the same few books aboard every boat I got on. And those were the books about the 1968, 69 uh, Golden Globe. And that was the first trip and really the first attempt to sail solo nonstop around the world. And I read those over and over again. And, you know, that was such an amazing time for for long distance sailing because it was it was sort of the last great achievement the final everest so to speak uh in the sailing world and to be able to sort of picture myself alone on these boats way out in the middle of the southern ocean for some reason and i'm still not 100 percent clear uh for some reason it really resonated with me and it sounded like it was going to be a really great adventure and and it sounded like it would be fun uh, I would learn later that there's a lot of drawbacks, uh, especially down in the Southern Ocean. But it uh, it was it was it was just those influences that I had from those books and and you know just the descriptions of what those guys went through. For me, that really just became something that I really wanted to give a shot to. Uh, what was the name of the book? Uh, there were a couple of them, but. Uh, Sir Robin Knox Johnson's book is called A World of My Own, and obviously he was the guy who won it. He's the first person to sail solo nonstop around the world. But there's Bernard Motissier's book, uh, The Long Way, and then the one I think that captured my focus the most was um, A Voyage for Mad Men. 
I mean, the title alone is perfect. <laughs> Why do you see yourself as a madman? Uh, I've been called that a few times, um, but I, I, it just seemed like to me it was it was something so worth doing um, to to push yourself out so far beyond the limits of of normal everyday life. I don't know. It, it just it was just something that was always sparkling, sort of in the back of my head, and and those influences really, really kind of pushed me into it. And you know, for the first ten, twelve years after seeing those books and and even finding out about doing something like that, I never really gave it much more than you know daydreaming. But as as I got more and more into sailing and and put more miles under the keel and. Uh, and and as life sort of slowly keeps going by and by, you know, you start looking at, you know, what have I done and what am I really doing and what's really important. And uh, for me, you know, going on those those ultimate adventures and, and really looking at how you want to end up and what sort of story you want to have to tell, that's that that really resonated with me. And you started your journey at in Gloucester, Massachusetts. That's where you set sail from. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, Gloucester. And, that, and that's exactly where the perfect storm was filmed, and that's kind of where it happened, just off of that coast. Now, yeah, that you were sorry, you, sorry, Jeremy. You were telling me about a wall that's right there with the names etched onto that wall. What what's that wall all about? Uh, well, basically, Gloucester's City Hall. They they have they have sort of a memorial and it's this big wall and it's a memorial to all the Gloucester men that have been lost at sea. And there's literally thousands of names and it goes year by year. And some years it's only two or three people. Uh, and some years it's literally 20, 30, 40 people, but those are all people, mostly fishermen. Um, but the, the names that are from the 1800s, those guys were all on sailboats and they were headed out to George's bank or, further off um you know and those those guys never came back and there's a, such a uh, a mystique when you go in there and you see that and uh you know gloucester for me we had a family connection there but uh more than that i think from a historical standpoint gloucester is just such an amazing adventurous hardy sort of seafaring town and i was very very happy to add to their uh sort of history there and and when you set off from gloucester what was your planned route to go this uh, is non-stop and it's solo all yeah. the way so you cannot stop at all correct yeah and it, it's actually pretty funny james because when I when I describe this to a lot of people, um, I tell them, you know, I sailed nonstop around the world. And typically the first question is, well, where did you stop? Because <laughs> people just don't, they don't wrap their heads around it. So I describe it as I sailed alone around the world without stopping. And that seems to sort of help, but people usually have to think about it a bit. Uh, but the route is pretty easy. Uh, you, you typically... From the United States, which, you know, I, I'm not 100% sure, but I think it's the only successful one leaving from the United States. Um, but from the East Coast, you head about two-thirds of the way across the Atlantic, and then you go due south. You head to the equator, down south uh, across the South Atlantic on your way to uh, on the southern tip of Africa. Mm -hmm. And then you go across the Indian Ocean 
underneath Australia, Tasmania, New Zealand, across the Pacific, underneath Cape Horn, and then you ride them the current all the way back up north. Christ almighty. And, and how long did that take you in the end? It was, a, was 280 days? Very close, uh, 271 days. Now, how on earth do you provision for a trip like this? And, and, and I also want to talk about all of your mental training because you're basically in solitary confinement. And this can send people kind of crazy, can't it? Oh, absolutely. And, and that was one of the questions I had in my head. You know, one of the worries and concerns was, you know, what, what does happen to your, your brain when, when you have nobody to talk to for months and months on end? And not only that, but you just you're not around anybody. You don't hear other people besides, you know, a voice on, say, a podcast that you're listening to or something like that. Uh, but I did have quite a bit of a mental workout doing the Appalachian Trail. You know, when you're hiking for 10 or 12 hours a day, you are in your head the whole day. I mean, the, the Appalachian Trail, you're in the woods and typically there's there's so many routes and things like that. You're actually just staring at the trail one foot ahead of your feet and you're doing that all day you'll take little breaks but so when you do that you're you're constantly just thinking 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 and so i almost i almost consider the appalachian trail was sort of a big workout and a test platform uh, for how i would do alone the other aspect really is that halfway through the appalachian trail about 80 percent of the people that attempt it have already quit and so you go from seeing people every day to not seeing anybody for yes. whole days, sometimes multiple days, and then always camping alone at night. And so I probably spent about 70 to 80 days pretty much alone towards the end of that trip. And so I, I got a good taste of it for sure. And that's probably very similar to sailing solo around the world because there have been a lot of terrible accidents out there where people have never come back. Oh, yeah. They'll, you know... Plenty of boats are found just sort of there with the sails all shredded up and they've been out there for weeks and there's no signs of life, uh, but they'll find, you know, a coffee mug sitting on the navigation station and, you know, no, no person was ever found because, I mean, in reality, walking up and down my little deck from the bow to the stern, I've got a, a little a little safety rail there that's about two and a half feet high. But if I fall over that, that boat's going to keep going. You know, the, the auto helm that I have is not battery operated. There's no way to remotely switch it off. It's just going to keep sailing. And, you know, you pretty much, uh, you really have to always consider something like that. Was there a, t I mean, you were on a sailboat. It's called a West sail and it was 32 feet long. Yes. And you chose this, particular boat because it had a history of surviving terrible storms oh yeah i mean they they're absolutely built so tough and and you know that that saying of they don't build them like they used to that is perfect for a west sail 32 i mean they were built in the 70s but they were way overbuilt and they were really designed to be able to carry your everyday average sailor wherever he wanted to go in the world. And I, I have the, the very cool honor of being the only West sail to actually circumnavigate nonstop. Um, but in the history of those boats, they, there were people crossing the Pacific from New Zealand to Cape Horn back in the early 80s on those boats. 
And um, so they, they've had quite a few adventures out there. But I, I really did choose that boat because of that that story of the perfect storm. I mean, it, it when I heard that that boat, it was a West Sail 32 called Satori. And after the Coast Guard had pulled the two crew and the captain off of that boat, it still made it through that horrendous storm all the way in and ended up beaching itself on the Jersey shore with its mast and its rudder intact. I mean, it was basically pulled off and then towed into a Marina. And, and I thought to myself, well, I better take a look at this. These, these boats seem pretty solid. But a 32 foot boat, that's not that long, Jerome. I mean, I would think 50 feet minimum to go around the world. Uh, well, you know, it, it's actually interesting. It's, uh, it's one of those things where, the size of the ship, it it matters in some respects when you're thinking about speed, but the strength of a smaller boat is absolutely amazing. I mean, the it's almost like the smaller you get, the more of like an eggshell it is where, you know, it's it doesn't have much room to flex. It can be really, really strong. And the, the, the scary thing is, is when the waves get bigger than, you know, the top of your mast, then you, you start to really feel how small the boat is. But a West sail really does come into its own in a gale. And it's, I always describe mighty Sparrow as sort of a, a duck on a pond. And these, these big breaking waves would be rolling up astern of me. And, and just when you think that thing's going to just collapse and sink the boat, sparrow just kicks its stern up and and rides right over it it's it's pretty pretty remarkable was there a point in the journey where you thought you might die uh there were definitely some very scary nights for sure um i think one of the probably one of the scariest nights uh was deep in the south pacific ocean and it was one of the only storms where i wasn't really alone and that was because the Volvo ocean race boats were maybe a hundred or 200 miles south of my position. And we were all in this very, very long, long gale. It had been going on for a few days. And so the waves had built up quite bad. And uh, how high were they? Um, it's really hard to estimate. I would say the average wave height was probably around 25 to 30 feet. And, and that's on average. So, that's what you're normally seeing. And when you get in conditions like that, what that means is that every hundredth wave or so, something like that, you know, you're going to see a 40 or a 45 foot wave and a 45 foot wave is, is it's unbelievable to see something like that, especially when it's breaking. I mean, that that's a wave that's powerful enough to pretty much, if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, it can take out almost anything. I mean, they're, they're pretty scary, but, but on, on that night I had been knocked down by, by a wave. And basically what that means is the wave hit me a little bit on the side and it pushes the boat over 90 degrees. The mast hit the water and, um, you know, I got thrown all over the cabin stuff gets all dislodged. Uh, the wave ended up ripping off some of the stuff, uh, on the deck and, you know, it was, it was a scary night because, it's not like you can just say, okay, well, I'm just going to hide down here. You actually then have to proceed to go on deck and start dealing with what's going on. And what was the wind uh, like? 
Uh, I think the wind at that point was sort of oscillating between force nine and force 10, which is around 50 to 65 knots. Um, so very windy. I mean, enough to knock you over. You, you really feel it. And when, when you get winds like that, you're getting a lot of spray and salt water in the air. So, you know, your, your vision is compromised and, you know, to have that happening, especially at night. And you're even, all by yourself. You've got no one to rely on. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's sort of the thing, you know, that's, that's the adventure part of it is that, you know, you're standing up there and I'll, I'll never forget it. I was, the winds had, had gotten up to a point where I had to take my mainsail completely down and lash it to the boom. And I had this tiny little scrap, like a bed sheet size scrap of sail, uh, up on the, the foredeck and that was working well. And I was going fast enough and everything was pretty much under control. But I think the winds had dropped just enough that the boat was slowing down too much. And that was what led eventually to me getting knocked down. Because if you have enough power in your sails, as those big waves come up and they're breaking and they're coming up right behind you, you know, if, if the boat can get that power and sort of scoot off in front of it, then you're, you're pretty well and safe. But if you're if you don't have that power pushing you along, that's when the wave basically can smack you down. So at least that's my theory. I think you're absolutely right. And so you never really had the option of just dropping the sails and, and hunkering down and waiting it out in the cabin. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's that's a very uh, typical sort of um, storm tactic called, you know, you go hove to. And it's a way to sort of set things where where you can sort of just stay in one position and sort of take the waves the best the way your boat can. And in normal circumstances, I think that works great. In the Southern Ocean, however, once once the waves get to a certain height, then you're sort of it almost feels like you're a sitting duck and you're just waiting. And I when I was out there, I wanted to just keep moving. I wanted to feel more proactive and so I sort of went with one of the old, they used to call it the Motissier method. And that was get as much speed as you can and just run with the storm. And a lot of people would disagree with that for sure. But, uh, you know, that, that was the, the way that I sort of saw it. And so, you know, what was a challenge that night was that after the knockdown, I realized that I just needed to add more sail. And that's much easier said than done in 50 to 55 knots of wind. And I, it took me maybe 45 minutes just to, just to raise up a little extra bit of mainsail. And I just, I'll never forget that scene. There's just, you know, breaking waves. The moon kept sort of coming out through the clouds and the whole sea, the whole ocean was just white with spray and breaking waves. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, I've got to be the only idiot out here trying to put more sail up in this storm. <laughs> it is fabulous. That is an incredible story. But how long did that storm last? Uh, I believe that was a good like two or three day gale. And, and unfortunately, that was the one where uh, one of the sailors on the Volvo boats uh, was lost overboard, a guy by the name of John Fisher. And uh, they weren't able to recover him. And I think they ended up retiring from that from that leg of the race. But, you know, to, to have these professionals going through so much, um, you know, drama and, and that sort of loss out there 
really hit home with me because you know i'm this amateur i'm on a you know 45 year old boat and i'm all by myself and you know these guys are having so much trouble and you know i still had to go much further south to even get to cape horn it was it was a pretty scary time for sure and, and at that point i'm sure you were really looking forward to cape horn isn't that considered to be the most treacherous part of the ocean in the world well, you're, you're definitely very exposed. I would equate it to, you know, getting, getting above sort of the, the, what do they call it? The death zone on Everest where, you know, you get to a certain height and you only have a certain amount of time there before, you know, you're going to be in real trouble. And it's the same as you head down around 55 to 57 degrees South latitude. You are so exposed. Those Where, storms... Whereabouts is that, Jerome, if people aren't following this with a map? Um, I guess the, the best way to put it in perspective is Cape Horn lies about 500 miles away from Antarctica. So you are really on the bottom of the planet. And it's, when you and it's try south and of South it. America, isn't it? Yeah. So it's, you're going just below the very tip of South America. And, you know, they long ago, the sailors nicknamed those latitudes, the roaring forties, the furious fifties and the screaming sixties. And to get around Cape Horn, you need to go to 57 degrees South. And it's, you know, it's really amazing. And I, you know, I never really wrapped my head around it until I looked at a globe, because when you want to see Cape Horn on a globe, you actually have to grab the thing and turn it upside down. And then you really get a grasp of, of just how far away you are from, from everything. And is the ocean as furious as the legends have it? I was very lucky. You know, I, I squeaked by. We had a small gale come up uh, just as I was coming into my, my approach for Cape Horn. And it, it blew me past there right in the middle of the night. But um, leading up to it, the things that I was having trouble with, being that it was pretty late in the season, I rounded on April 7th. And, um, you know, there wasn't any rain. It was all hail and snowstorms. It was very cold. The temperatures were, you know, 25, 28 degrees Fahrenheit. And you get these, these hail storms that are small, but they're intense and it's 24 hours a day. So, you know, you're not sleeping much and there's a lot of work involved. You It's very cold. And, um, you know, that, that really started just around 50 degrees South. So I had it for about a week or 10 days of dealing with those conditions just to get to Cape Horn. God almighty. You must have been bloody knackered by the time you got out of that. That's, I was, I was that's English exhausted. for exhausted, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was pretty bad. And I, you know, I was having uh, a lot of other troubles just besides the weather. And You were out you know, of food had, at this point, weren't you? Pretty much, yeah. I, I was down to my last few rations. Um, and I, I hadn't been, I had been rationing since just about, I was South of Australia, but it became more and more intense as I went across. And, you know, with those temperatures, you know, your body is trying to sort of keep it, keep itself warm. And so you're burning more calories that way. Obviously you're having to do some work on the boat, but you know, I didn't have a heater on the boat or anything. So I'm wearing like seven layers of of thermals and never taking those off, but everything's damp. So uh, you know, I, I, I may have been putting, you know, between 600 or 800 calories in me per day, which is definitely nowhere near what you need. Yeah. You need about 4,000 if you're doing that. 
<laughs> I would say so. How do you ration and and kind of figure out your food for it for almost two hundred and ninety days or two hundred and seventy five days? Well, and that yeah, I mean, in the beginning, I was I don't want to say I was haphazardly just slopping together lists, but you know, I I was trying to count out all the different servings and and sort of plan it out because I expected I was planning for 300 days and you know i probably should have been planning for say 350 but um i just sort of you know you, you sit down with a pen and paper and and the one thing that i didn't look at when i was doing all of the all the planning was i didn't really actually take a look at the calories and and that's what it really does come down to um you know you can have different servings of this or that but a serving of say you know scalloped potatoes might only be 150 calories or something like that and in my calculations that wasn't going into it and i was thinking okay that's a serving so that's one meal count it and you know that was a mistake i would live to regret for sure yeah i mean these arctic guys bring butter pig fat olive oil all that kind of stuff the stuff that really packs 100 calories per tablespoon yes so you rounded cape horn and you've lost a lot of weight at this point right yeah, I was I I didn't know exactly what I looked like because I I hadn't taken all those layers off. The I I took a sort of a little freshwater bath south of New Zealand and that would be the last one until I was back in the Atlantic. So almost two and a half months went by where I was fully clothed all the time and you know, my only clue was that I was cold. I couldn't stay warm. Um but I just didn't really realize to the extent of, of how much my body had eaten itself, so to speak, uh, until just about two days after the Falkland Islands. And that was the next bath that I took. And when I took my shirt off, the first thing I noticed that I had veins, not only on my arm, but on my stomach, my shoulders, all this stuff, they were just popping out. And then I you know, I could feel that my armpits were really deep. And then I took a few like selfie pictures and that was when I really saw the extent of how how emaciated I really was. I had probably lost close to 50 pounds. Gosh, isn't that incredible? And, and you were out of food pretty much at this point. Yeah, and, it, you know, I wasn't thinking right. You know, I, I've had so much time to reflect on this trip and and really realize some of the some of the mistakes that I made and then also really how lucky I was because, you know, we had we'd sort of set up for me to pull into um, the outer bay of Port Stanley in the Falklands. And all I had to do was get in there, a boat would come out, toss me over the supplies, and I would just sail on out. So I wouldn't have to anchor or anything. And, you know, as soon as I had that sort of set, I just totally forgot about any rationing. I thought, okay, I'm going to be in the Falklands in three, four days. And I pretty much ate everything I had. And I literally had, I think, one half of a pound of rice and a bottle of soy sauce left and you know when i think back on that now that was probably the dumbest thing i could have done because if if i had been blown out in a storm or for some reason couldn't have made it to the falklands then i was that was it that would have been game over uh, but at the time all i thought was okay I'm, I'm basically going to the grocery so what can i eat and i ate everything i could oh my gosh. but uh, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. 
Jerome, when you set off on this journey, uh, who kind of was there to bid you farewell and to wish you luck? And how did you deal with the fact that you nearly died out there several times? Did you ever think of your family, your mother, your father? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I I had most of my family was there um, when I departed. My mom... She couldn't. She couldn't be there. She said it was. It would be too hard. So she. She sort of stayed at home on that one. But uh, she was definitely there when I returned. Um, and I, you know, out of all the people that I know, friends, family, all that, I, I would say my mother definitely took the brunt of all the stress and the, you know, the worrying nights and all that sort of stuff. You know, and that's that's probably the only drawback to doing some of these things that I do is that you do you you cause your family stress but it's it's just one of those things where she she would never tell me not to go she would say you know i wish you could choose a different <laughs> occupation <laughs> but um you know that that's sort of it just sort of comes with the territory now i don't have a wife and i don't have children i i can't imagine if i did i would actually continue to do things like this but i know there's quite a few sailors that are out there that do it and they they leave their families and, and everything and go out and rip around the world and come right back. So were you able to keep everybody updated at home? Yeah, I, I was using a, a device called a Garmin inReach, and, and what that allows you to do is basically text people. So I could send text messages up to, I think 160 characters and, and they could send them back to me. I couldn't do pictures or anything like that, but, um, and I was able to, I was able to text and that, that definitely helps. It's not the same as, as, you know, talking on the phone or, or being able to see people and stuff like that. But it, it helped. There were a lot of times where I could sit there and text back and forth and I was updating my mom at eight, 8 AM her time every single day. And if I slept through it or something like that, you know, it would be, you'd give her a heart attack. (laughs) Yeah, basically. Well, and I, I guess other family members were calling her if, if she was late on posting it, on the internet, you know, they would, they'd call her up and like, is, is something wrong? How come you didn't post something this morning? And, you know, so there was a little bit of panic, but you know, at, at, because I was doing it at a certain time, their time zone, cause I went through every time zone, uh, you know, it'd be two in the morning. I would have to wake up and give them their morning report, you know, sort of thing. And sometimes I would miss them. But you may have already been awake if you had 45 foot waves coming over the bow. Yeah, yeah, that'll that'll sending, keep you up at night. Sending text messages. Yeah, the wind is, is up to about 80 miles per hour this evening. <laughs> Nothing to worry about. I've got well, the jib up. <laughs> that's one of the funniest things because, you know, I'm sending these through my mom, so I obviously can't tell the truth all the time. You know, I can't say, you know, Mom, it's, it's pretty horrendous out here. I don't know if I'm going to survive the night. You know, love you. Can't do that. So <laughs> they were getting sort of a, a PG-rated uh, version of my trip, and... And it's kind of nice now because there are a lot of people that followed it that come to my presentations and, you know, I, I'll meet with them and they'll say, you know, gosh, it's very different, you know, from what I read. And as I was following you, it's uh, you really, you know, shed a lot of light on what was really going on out there. Did you see anything out there that was truly beautiful that you could never see just on normal land? Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, you know the some of the marine life the whales in the indian ocean were absolutely unbelievable i mean i had whales that would pace along right next to mighty sparrow and these whales were 
the same size, if not bigger. But this one day I had them where they were coming up and they would roll onto their side so I could see, you know, the barnacles and everything on their bellies. And they would, I would see their, their tail would just come out of the water and literally two feet away from the boat. And they were just checking me out. And this would go on for, you know, nearly an hour. And it's just seeing something like that's really amazing. I saw a lot of whales feeding on, you know, the big fields of krill that are out there. Um, you know, watching the albatross just albatross are the most amazing bird on the planet. I mean, they, I, I, I don't know if I've ever seen one flap its wings. They just seem to glide. And no matter what the wind condition is, it can be blowing 45 knots and they're out there just acting like it's no big deal. And, Gosh. and they're just beautiful, beautiful birds. I could watch those for hours and hours. How big are they? Uh, I think they have the largest wingspan of any bird and, and you know, I think the big ones, it's probably around 10 or 11 foot wingspan. So they are huge, absolutely Gosh, huge. Enormous. What did the stars look like where there's absolutely zero light pollution? Oh, they're, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to describe, you know, in, especially in the Southern Hemisphere, um, because they're really, I, I think the air quality down there, it's, it's much more crisp, let's say. And, in the Indian Ocean, after I was clipped by Cyclone Irving, um, as it headed further south, it took all the moisture and humidity out of the atmosphere. And for two nights, I had stars that were twice as bright as anything I've ever seen on the coldest nights in Michigan or the furthest I'd been out to sea. And, you know, enough where the whole boat was just illuminated with just the starlight alone. And, you know, no moon or anything like that. I remember staying up for hours and hours in the freezing cold just to just to be able to take in the moment. Oh, gosh. And after a storm, of course, I love photography. And I always notice that the sun sets or the sun rises are the most spectacular. But there's land in the way. What are they like yeah, out exactly. in the ocean? Nope, no, none of that problem there. And and I, yeah, I, I have a few clips of... Uh, there was a, a pretty nasty gale in the South Tasman Sea down in between New Zealand and Australia. And the aftermath of that was one of the most spectacular. They had a sunset to the west, and then it was illuminating a double rainbow to the east. And the entire sky, the whole world was orange and going from orange to red and then fading to like purple. And I mean, you know, you see stuff like that and... That, those are the times that I really would love to get somebody on board so they could see it as well and, and maybe give give them a glimpse of, of why I go out there. But for me, too, it's it's nice because I'm kind of like, this is my scene. This is my world here. And, you know, nobody else gets to see this. Absolutely fabulous. Well, Jerome, it's been a privilege having you on today. Um, I can only say you must have been completely exhausted when you finally got home. Yeah, I was I was a little bit uh, a little tired and I, you know, I pulled into Gloucester. I was there for two days and then had to do another overnight passage from Gloucester up to Maine to haul the boat out. And so I, you know, I really wasn't finished. I still had another 130 miles to sail. Uh, what's next? Have you, have you got anything <laughs> planned or nothing? Uh, no, you know, there's there's a few things sort of cooking up in my head, um, you know, as far as long distance, you know, ocean sailing and circumnavigating, there's, there's a couple extra routes that, you know, add in things like the Northwest Passage and, 
and stuff like that where nobody's been able to do them yet. And there's only three or four different routes that you can really circle this globe. And it's almost like there's a couple more Everests out there. And it would be pretty nice to do something, you know, that nobody's ever been able to do before. But the only trick is now I know what I'd be getting into. And that's very different from the person who set off in 2017. You know, I, I, I knew about the ocean, but I didn't know about, you know, the Southern Ocean. So we'll have to see what happens. I wouldn't mind trying to do the figure eight which basically you, you circumnavigate the Americas and Antarctica, but uh, that, that'd be more like a 360 day trip. So that'd be upping the ante quite a bit. Incredible. Well, Jerome, thank you again. It's been, it's been an amazing story. I hope that this is going to inspire every listener out there to get off the sofa and perhaps just walk along the Appalachian trail, if not sail around the world. There we go. (laughs) Well, thank you very much, James, for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Light Switch Podcast. Please give us a follow on Instagram. We are at the Light Switch Podcast. And that way you can stay tuned in to any new episodes coming out in the near future. Also, if you would like to book this speaker or any other speaker pretty much in the world, we've got you covered. We've been in business since 2009, placing talent on five continents. You can find us at robinsonspeakers.com for all of your keynote speakers that you'd like to book. And until next time, I'm your host, James Robinson.